Chapters thirty six through thirty nine of Of Human Bondage. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Of Human Bondage by W. Somerset Maughan. Chapter thirty six. A few days later, Philip went to London. The curate had recommended rooms in Barnes, and these Philip engaged by letter at fourteen shillings a week. He reached them in the evening, and the landlady, a funny little old woman with a shriveled body and a deeply wrinkled face, had prepared high tea for him. Most of the sitting-room was taken up by the sideboard and a square table. Against one wall was a sofa covered with horsehair, and by the fireplace an armchair to match. There was a white antimacassar over the back of it, and on the seat, because the springs were broken, a hard cushion. After having his tea he unpacked and arranged his books, then he sat down and tried to read. But he was depressed. The silence in the street made him slightly uncomfortable, and he felt very much alone. Next day he got up early. He put on his tailcoat and the tall hat which he had worn at school, but it was very shabby and he had made up his mind to stop at the stores on his way to the office and buy a new one. When he had done this he found himself in plenty of time, and so walked along the Strand. The office of Messrs. Herbert Carter and Company was in a little street off Chancery Lane, and he had to ask his way two or three times. He felt that people were staring at him a great deal, and once he took off his hat to see whether by chance the label had been left on. When he arrived he knocked at the door, but no one answered, and looking at his watch he found it was barely half-past nine. He supposed he was too early. He went away and ten minutes later returned to find an office boy with a long nose, pimply face, and a Scotch accent opening the door. Philip asked for Mr. Herbert Carter. He had not come yet. When will he be here? Between ten and half past. I'd better wait, said Philip. What are you wanting? asked the office boy. Philip was nervous but tried to hide the fact by a jocose manner. "'Well, I'm going to work here, if you have no objection.' "'Oh, you're the new articled clerk. You'd better come in. Mr. Goodworthy'll be here in a while.' Philip walked in, and as he did so saw the office boy, he was about the same age as Philip and called himself a junior clerk, look at his foot. He flushed and, sitting down, hid it behind the other. He looked round the room. It was dark and very dingy. It was lit by a skylight. There were three rows of desks in it and against them high stools. Over the chimney-piece was a dirty engraving of a prize-fight. Presently a clerk came in, and then another. They glanced at Philip and in an undertone asked the office-boy, Philip found his name was MacDougall, who he was. A whistle blew and MacDougall got up. Mr. Godworthy's come. He's the managing clerk. Shall I tell him you're here? Yes, please, said Philip. The office-boy went out and in a moment returned. "'Will you come this way?' Philip followed him across the passage and was shown into a room, small and barely furnished, in which a little thin man was standing with his back to the fireplace. He was much below the middle height, but his large head, which seemed to hang loosely on his body, gave him an odd ungainliness. His features were wide and flattened, and he had prominent pale eyes. His thin hair was sandy. He wore whiskers that grew unevenly on his face, and in places where you would have expected the hair to grow thickly there was no hair at all. 
His skin was pasty and yellow. He held out his hand to Philip, and when he smiled showed badly decayed teeth. He spoke with a patronizing and at the same time a timid air, as though he sought to assume an importance which he did not feel. He said he hoped Philip would like the work. There was a good deal of drudgery about it, but when you got used to it it was interesting. And one made money, that was the chief thing, wasn't it? He laughed with his odd mixture of superiority and shyness. "'Mr. Carter will be here presently,' he said. "'He's a little late on Monday morning sometimes. I'll call you when he comes. In the meantime I must give you something to do. Do you know anything about bookkeeping or accounts?' "'I'm afraid not,' answered Philip. "'I didn't suppose you would. They don't teach you things at school that are much use in business, I'm afraid.' He considered for a moment. "'I think I can find you something to do.' He went into the next room and after a little while came out with a large cardboard box. It contained a vast number of letters in great disorder, and he told Philip to sort them out and arrange them alphabetically according to the names of the writers. "'I'll take you to the room in which the article clerk generally sits. There's a very nice fellow in it. His name is Watson. He's a son of Watson, Cragg, and Thompson, you know, the brewers. He's spending a year with us to learn business.' Mr. Goodworthy led Philip through the dingy office where now six or eight clerks were working into a narrow room behind. It had been made into a separate apartment by a glass partition, and here they found Watson sitting back in a chair reading the sportsman. He was a large, stout young man, elegantly dressed, and he looked up as Mr. Goodworthy entered. He asserted his position by calling the managing clerk Goodworthy. The managing clerk objected to the familiarity and pointedly called him Mr. Watson. But Watson, instead of seeing it was a rebuke, accepted the title as a tribute to his gentlemanliness. "'I see they've scratched Rigoletto,' he said to Philip, as soon as they were left alone. "'Have they?' said Philip, who knew nothing about horse-racing. He looked with awe upon Watson's beautiful clothes. His tail-coat fitted him perfectly, and there was a valuable pin artfully stuck in the middle of an enormous tie. On the chimney-piece rested his tall hat. It was saucy and bell-shaped and shiny. Philip felt himself very shabby. Watson began to talk of hunting. It was such an infernal bore having to waste one's time in an infernal office. He would only be able to hunt on Saturdays and shooting. He had ripping invitations all over the country, and of course he had to refuse them. It was infernal luck, but he wasn't going to put up with it long. He was only in this internal hole for a year, and then he was going into the business, and he would hunt four days a week and get all the shooting there was. "'You've got five years of it, haven't you?' he said, waving his arm round the tiny room. "'I suppose so,' said Philip. "'I dare say I shall see something of you. Carter does our accounts, you know.' Philip was somewhat overpowered by the young gentleman's condescension. At Blackstable they had always looked upon brewing with civil contempt. The vicar made little jokes about the beerage, and it was a surprising experience for Philip to discover that Watson was such an important and magnificent fellow. He had been to Winchester and to Oxford, and his conversation impressed the fact upon one with frequency. When he discovered the details of Philip's education, his manner became more patronizing still. Of course, if one doesn't go to a public school, those sort of schools are the next best thing, aren't they? Philip asked about the other men in the office. 
"'Oh, I don't bother about them much, you know,' said Watson. "'Carter's not a bad sort. We have him to dine now and then. All the rest are awful bounders.' Presently Watson applied himself to some work he had in hand, and Philip set about sorting his letters. Then Mr. Goodworthy came in to say that Mr. Carter had arrived. He took Philip into a large room next door to his own. There was a big desk in it and a couple of big armchairs. A turkey carpet adorned the floor, and the walls were decorated with sporting prints. Mr. Carter was sitting at the desk and got up to shake hands with Philip. He was dressed in a long frock coat. He looked like a military man. His moustache was waxed, his gray hair was short and neat. He held himself upright. He talked in a breezy way. He lived at Enfield. He was very keen on games and the good of the country. He was an officer in the Hertfordshire Yeomanry and chairman of the Conservative Association. When he was told that a local magnate had said no one would take him for a city man, he felt that he had not lived in vain. He talked to Philip in a pleasant off-hand fashion. Mr. Goodworthy would look after him. Watson was a nice fellow, perfect gentleman, good sportsman. Did Philip hunt? Pity, the sport for gentlemen. Didn't have much chance of hunting now, had to leave that to his son. His son was at Cambridge, he'd sent him to rugby, fine school rugby, nice class of boys there. In a couple of years his son would be articled, that would be nice for Philip, he'd like his son, thorough sportsman. He hoped Philip would get on well and like the work, he mustn't miss his lectures, they were getting up on the tone of the profession, they wanted gentlemen in it. Well, well, Mr. Goodworthy was there. If he wanted to know anything, Mr. Goodworthy would tell him. What was his handwriting like? Ah, well, Mr. Goodworthy would see about that. Philip was overwhelmed by so much gentlemanliness. In East Anglia they knew who gentlemen were and who weren't, but the gentlemen didn't talk about it. End of chapter 36 Chapter 37 At first the novelty of the work kept Philip interested. Mr. Carter dictated letters to him, and he had to make fair copies of statements of accounts. Mr. Carter preferred to conduct the office on gentlemanly lines. He would have nothing to do with typewriting, and looked upon shorthand with disfavor. The office boy knew shorthand, but it was only Mr. Goodworthy who made use of his accomplishment. Now and then Philip, with one of the more experienced clerks, went out to audit the accounts of some firm. He came to know which of the clients must be treated with respect, and which were in low water. Now and then long lists of figures were given him to add up. He attended lectures for his first examination. Mr. Goodworthy repeated to him that the work was dull at first, but he would grow used to it. Philip left the office at six and walked across the river to Waterloo. His supper was waiting for him when he reached his lodgings and he spent the evening reading. On Saturday afternoons he went on to the National Gallery. Hayward had recommended to him a guide which had been compiled out of Ruskin's works, and with this in hand he went industriously through room after room. He read carefully what the critic had said about a picture, and then in a determined fashion set himself to see the same things in it. His Sundays were difficult to get through. He knew no one in London and spent them by himself. Mr. Nixon, the solicitor, asked him to spend a Sunday at Hampstead and Philip passed a happy day with a set of exuberant strangers. He ate and drank a great deal, took a walk on the heath, 
and came away with a general invitation to come again whenever he liked. But he was morbidly afraid of being in the way, so waited for a formal invitation. Naturally enough, it never came, for with numbers of friends of their own the Nixons did not think of the lonely silent boy whose claim upon their hospitality was so small. So on Sundays he got up late and took a walk along the towpath. At Barnes the river is muddy, dingy, and tidal. It has neither the graceful charm of the Thames above the locks nor the romance of the crowded stream below London Bridge. In the afternoon he walked about the common, and that is gray and dingy too. It is neither country nor town. The gorse is stunted, and all about is the litter of civilization. He went to a play every Saturday night and stood cheerfully for an hour or more at the gallery door. It was not worth while to go back to Barnes for the interval between the closing of the museum and his meal in an ABC shop, and the time hung heavily on his hands. He strolled up Mond Street or through the Burlington Arcade, and when he was tired went and sat down in the park or in wet weather in the public library in St. Martin's Lane. He looked at the people walking about and envied them because they had friends. Sometimes his envy turned to hatred because they were happy and he was miserable. He had never imagined that it was possible to be so lonely in a great city. Sometimes when he was standing at the gallery door the man next to him would attempt a conversation, but Philip had the country boy's suspicion of strangers and answered in such a way as to prevent any further acquaintance. After the play was over, obliged to keep to himself all he thought about it, he hurried across the bridge to Waterloo. When he got back to his rooms, in which for economy no fire had been lit, his heart sank. It was horribly cheerless. He began to loathe his lodgings in the long, solitary evenings he spent in them. Sometimes he felt so lonely that he could not read, and then he sat looking into the fire hour after hour in bitter wretchedness. He had spent three months in London now, and except for that one Sunday at Hampstead, had never talked to anyone but his fellow clerks. One evening Watson asked him to dinner at a restaurant, and they went to a music hall together, but he felt shy and uncomfortable. Watson talked all the time of things he did not care about, and while he looked upon Watson as a Philistine, he could not help admiring him. He was angry because Watson obviously set no store on his culture, and with his way of taking himself at the estimate at which he saw others held him, he began to despise the acquirements which till then had seemed to him not unimportant. He felt for the first time the humiliation of poverty. His uncle sent him fourteen pounds a month, and he had had to buy a good many clothes. His evening suit cost him five guineas. He had not dared tell Watson that it was bought in the Strand. Watson said there was only one tailor in London. "'I suppose you don't dance,' said Watson one day, with a glance at Philip's club foot. "'No,' said Philip. "'Pity. I've been asked to bring some dancing men to a ball. I could have introduced you to some jolly girls.' Once or twice hating the thought of going back to Barnes, Philip had remained in town and late in the evening wandered through the West End till he found some house at which there was a party. He stood among the little group of shabby people behind the footman watching the guests arrive, and he listened to the music that floated through the window. 
Sometimes, notwithstanding the cold, a couple came on to the balcony and stood for a moment to get some fresh air, and Philip, imagining that they were in love with one another, turned away and limped along the street with a heavy hurt. He would never be able to stand in that man's place. He felt that no woman could ever really look upon him without distaste for his deformity. That reminded him of Miss Wilkinson. He thought of her without satisfaction. Before parting they had made an arrangement that she should write to Charing Cross Post Office till he was able to send her an address, and when he went there he found three letters from her. She wrote on blue paper with violet ink, and she wrote in French. Philip wondered why she could not write in English like a sensible woman, and her passionate expressions, because they reminded him of a French novel, left him cold. She upbraided him for not having written, and when he answered he excused himself by saying that he had been busy. He did not quite know how to start the letter. He could not bring himself to use dearest or darling, and he hated to address her as Emily, so finally he began with the word dear. It looked odd, standing by itself, and rather silly, but he made it do. It was the first love-letter he had ever written, and he was conscious of its tameness. He felt that he should say all sorts of vehement things, how he thought of her every minute of the day, and how he longed to kiss her beautiful hands, and how he trembled at the thought of her red lips. But some inexplicable modesty prevented him, and instead he told her of his new rooms and his office. The answer came by return of post, angry, heartbroken, reproachful. How could he be so cold? Did he not know that she hung on his letters? She had given him all that a woman could give, and this was her reward? Was he tired of her already? Then, because he did not reply for several days, Miss Wilkinson bombarded him with letters. She could not bear his unkindness. She waited for the post, and it never brought her his letter. She cried herself to sleep night after night. She was looking so ill that everyone remarked on it. If he did not love her, why did he not say so? She added that she could not live without him, and the only thing was for her to commit suicide. She told him he was cold and selfish and ungrateful. It was all in French, and Philip knew that she wrote in that language to show off, but he was worried all the same. He did not want to make her unhappy. In a little while she wrote that she could not bear the separation any longer, she would arrange to come over to London for Christmas. Philip wrote back that he would like nothing better, only he had already an engagement to spend Christmas with friends in the country, and he did not see how he could break it. She answered that she did not wish to force herself on him, it was quite evident that he did not wish to see her. She was deeply hurt, and she never thought he would repay with such cruelty all her kindness. Her letter was touching, and Philip thought he saw marks of her tears on the paper. He wrote an impulsive reply, saying that he was dreadfully sorry, and imploring her to come. But it was with relief that he received her answer, in which she said that she found it would be impossible for her to get away. Presently, when her letters came, his heart sank. He delayed opening them, for he knew what they would contain angry reproaches and pathetic appeals. They would make him feel a perfect beast, and yet he did not see with what he had to blame himself. He put off his answer from day to day, and then another letter would come, saying she was ill and lonely and miserable. "'I wish to God I'd never had anything to do with her,' he said. 
He admired Watson because he had arranged these things so easily. The young man had been engaged in an intrigue with a girl who played in touring companies, and his account of the affair filled Philip with envious amazement. But after a time Watson's young affections changed, and one day he described the rupture to Philip. I thought it was no good making any bones about it, so I just told her I'd had enough of her, he said. Didn't she make an awful scene? asked Philip. The usual thing, you know, but I told her it was no good trying on that sort of thing with me. Did she cry? She began to, but I can't stand women when they cry, so I said she'd better hook it. Philip's sense of humor was growing keener with advancing years. And did she hook it? he asked, smiling. Well, there wasn't anything else for her to do, was there? Meanwhile, the Christmas holidays approached. Mrs. Carey had been ill all through November, and the doctor suggested that she and the vicar should go to Cornwall for a couple of weeks round Christmas so that she should get back her strength. The result was that Philip had nowhere to go, and he spent Christmas Day in his lodgings. Under Hayward's influence he had persuaded himself that the festivities that attend this season were vulgar and barbaric, and he made up his mind that he would take no notice of the day. But when it came the jollity of all around affected him strangely. His landlady and her husband were spending the day with a married daughter, and to save trouble Philip announced that he would take his meals out. He went up to London towards midday and ate a slice of turkey and some Christmas pudding by himself at Gaddy's, and since he had nothing to do afterwards went to Westminster Abbey for the afternoon service. The streets were almost empty, and the people who went along had a preoccupied look. They did not saunter but walked with some definite goal in view, and hardly any one was alone. To Philip they all seemed happy. He felt himself more solitary than he had ever done in his life. His intention had been to kill the day somehow in the streets, and then dine at a restaurant, but he could not face again the sight of cheerful people talking, laughing, and making merry. So he went back to Waterloo, and on his way through the Westminster Bridge Road bought some ham and a couple of mince pies, and went back to Barnes. He ate his food in his lonely little room and spent the evening with a book. His depression was almost intolerable. When he was back at the office it made him very sore to listen to Watson's account of the short holiday. They had had some jolly girls staying with them, and after dinner they had cleared out the drawing-room and had a dance. I didn't get to bed till three, and I don't know how I got there then. By George, I was squiffy. At last... Philip asked desperately. How does one get to know people in London? Watson looked at him with surprise, and with a slightly contemptuous amusement. Oh, I don't know, one just knows them. If you go to dances you soon get to know as many people as you can do with. Philip hated Watson, and yet he would have given anything to change places with him. The old feeling that he had had at school came back to him, and he tried to throw himself into the other's skin imagining what life would be if he were Watson. End of chapter 37 Chapter 38 At the end of the year there was a great deal to do. Philip went to various places with a clerk named Thompson and spent the day monotonously calling out items of expenditure which the other checked, and sometimes he was given long pages of figures to add up. He had never had a head for figures and he could only do this slowly. 
Thompson grew irritated at his mistakes. His fellow clerk was a long, lean man of forty, sallow with black hair and a ragged mustache. He had hollow cheeks and deep lines on each side of his nose. He took a dislike to Philip because he was an articled clerk, because he could put down three hundred guineas and keep himself for five years, Philip had the chance of a career, while he, with his experience and ability, had no possibility of ever being more than a clerk at thirty-five shillings a week. He was a cross-grained man, oppressed by a large family, and he resented the superciliousness which he fancied he saw in Philip. He sneered at Philip because he was better educated than himself, and he mocked at Philip's pronunciation. He could not forgive him because he spoke without a cockney accent, and when he talked to him sarcastically exaggerated his H's. At first his manner was merely gruff and repellent, but as he discovered that Philip had no gift for accountancy he took pleasure in humiliating him. His attacks were gross and silly, but they wounded Philip, and in self-defense he assumed an attitude of superiority which he did not feel. "'At a bath this morning?' Thompson said when Philip came into the office late, for his early punctuality had not lasted. "'Yes, haven't you?' "'No, I'm not a gentleman. I'm only a clerk. I have a bath on Saturday night. I suppose that's why you're more than usually disagreeable on Monday. Will you condescend to do a few sums in simple addition today? I'm afraid it's asking a great deal from a gentleman who knows Latin and Greek. Your attempts at sarcasm are not very happy.' But Philip could not conceal from himself that the other clerks, ill-paid and uncouth, were more useful than himself. Once or twice Mr. Goodworthy grew impatient with him. "'You really ought to be able to do better than this by now,' he said. "'You're not even as smart as the office boy.' Philip listened sulkily. He did not like being blamed, and it humiliated him when, having been given accounts to make fair copies of, Mr. Goodworthy was not satisfied and gave them to another clerk to do. At first the work had been tolerable from its novelty, but now it grew irksome, and when he discovered that he had no aptitude for it he began to hate it. Often, when he should have been doing something that was given him, he wasted his time drawing little pictures on the office notepaper. He made sketches of Watson in every conceivable attitude, and Watson was impressed by his talent. It occurred to him to take the drawings home, and he came back next day with the praises of his family. "'I wonder you didn't become a painter,' he said. "'Only, of course, there's no money in it.' It chanced that Mr. Carter, two or three days later, was dining with the Watsons, and the sketches were shown him. The following morning he sent for Philip. Philip saw him seldom and stood in some awe of him. "'Look here, young fellow. I don't care what you do out of office hours.' but I've seen those sketches of yours, and they're on office paper, and Mr. Goodworthy tells me you're slack. You won't do any good as a chartered accountant unless you look alive. It's a fine profession, and we're getting a very good class of men in it, but it's a profession in which you have to—' He looked for the termination of the phrase, but could not find exactly what he wanted, so finished rather tamely. "'In which you have to look alive. Perhaps Philip would have settled down but for the agreement that if he did not like the work he could leave after a year and get back half the money paid for his articles. He felt that he was fit for something better than to add up accounts, and it was humiliating that he did so ill something which seemed contemptible. The vulgar scenes with Thompson got on his nerves. In March, 
Watson ended his year at the office, and Philip, though he did not care for him, saw him go with regret. The fact that the other clerks disliked them equally, because they belonged to a class a little higher than their own, was a bond of union. When Philip thought that he must spend over four years more with that dreary set of fellows, his heart sank. He had expected wonderful things from London, and it had given him nothing. He hated it now. He did not know a soul, and he had no idea how he was going to get to know anyone. He was tired of going everywhere by himself. He began to feel that he could not stand much more of such a life. He would lie in bed at night and think of the joy of never seeing again that dingy office or any of the men in it, and of getting away from those drab lodgings. A great disappointment befell him in the spring. Hayward had announced his intention of coming to London for the season, and Philip had looked forward very much to seeing him again. He had read so much lately and thought so much that his mind was full of ideas which he wanted to discuss, and he knew nobody who was willing to interest himself in abstract things. He was quite excited at the thought of talking his fill with someone, and he was wretched when Hayward wrote to say that the spring was lovelier than ever he had known it in Italy, and he could not bear to tear himself away. He went on to ask why Philip did not come. What was the use of squandering the days of his youth in an office when the world was beautiful? The letter proceeded. I wonder you can bear it. I think of Fleet Street and Lincoln's Inn now with a shudder of disgust. There are only two things in the world that make life worth living, love and art. I cannot imagine you sitting in an office over a ledger, and do you wear a tall hat and an umbrella and a little black bag? My feeling is that one should look upon life as an adventure, one should burn with a hard, gem-like flame, and one should take risks, one should expose oneself to danger. Why do you not go to Paris and study art? I always thought you had talent. The suggestion fell in with the possibility that Philip for some time had been vaguely turning over in his mind. It startled him at first, but he could not help thinking of it, and in the constant rumination over it he found his only escape from the wretchedness of his present state. They all thought he had talent. At Heidelberg they had admired his watercolors. Miss Wilkinson had told him over and over again that they were chasing. Even strangers like the Watsons had been struck by his sketches. La Vie de Baume had made a deep impression on him. He had brought it to London, and when he was most depressed he had only to read a few pages to be transported into those chasing attics where Rudolphi and the rest of them danced and loved and sang. He began to think of Paris as before he had thought of London but he had no fear of a second disillusion. He yearned for romance and beauty and love, and Paris seemed to offer them all. He had a passion for pictures, and why should he not be able to paint as well as anybody else? He wrote to Miss Wilkinson and asked her how much she thought he could live on in Paris. She told him that he could manage easily on eighty pounds a year, and she enthusiastically approved of his project. She told him he was too good to be wasted in an office. Who would be a clerk when he might be a great artist? She asked dramatically, and she besought Philip to believe in himself. That was the great thing. But Philip had a cautious nature. It was all very well for Hayward to talk of taking risks. He had three hundred a year in gilt-edged securities. Philip's entire fortune amounted to no more than eighteen hundred pounds. 
he hesitated. Then it chanced that one day Mr. Goodworthy asked him suddenly if he would like to go to Paris. The firm did the accounts for a hotel in the Faubourg Saint-Omri, which was owned by an English company, and twice a year Mr. Goodworthy and a clerk went over. The clerk, who generally went, happened to be ill, and oppressive work prevented any of the others from getting away. Mr. Goodworthy thought of Philip because he could best be spared, and his articles gave him some claim upon a job which was one of the pleasures of the business. Philip was delighted. "'You'll have to work all day,' said Mr. Goodworthy, "'but we get our evenings to ourselves, and Paris is Paris.' He smiled in a knowing way. "'They do us very well at the hotel, and they give us all our meals, so it don't cost one anything. That's the way I like going to Paris, at other people's expense.' When they arrived at Calais and Philip saw the crowd of gesticulating porters, his heart leaped. "'This is the real thing,' he said to himself. He was all eyes as the train sped through the country. He adored the sand dunes, their colors seemed to him more lovely than anything he had ever seen, and he was enchanted with the canals and the long lines of poplars. When they got out of the Gare d'Anneau and trundled along the cobbled streets in a ramshackle noisy cab, it seemed to him that he was breathing a new air so intoxicating that he could hardly restrain himself from shouting aloud. They were met at the door of the hotel by the manager, a stout pleasant man who spoke tolerable English. Mr. Goodworthy was an old friend, and he greeted them effusively. They dined in his private room with his wife, and to Philip it seemed that he had never eaten anything so delicious as the beefsteak au pain, nor drunk such nectar as the vendorinaire which were set before them. To Mr. Goodworthy, a respectable householder with excellent principles, the capital of France was a paradise of the joyously obscene. He asked the manager next morning what there was to be seen that was thick. He thoroughly enjoyed these visits of his to Paris. He said they kept you from growing rusty. In the evenings, after their work was over and they had dined, he took Philip to the Moulin Rouge and to the Folet Bizière. His little eyes twinkled and his face wore a sly, sensual smile as he sought out the pornographic. He went into all the haunts which were specially arranged for the foreigner, and afterwards said that a nation could come to no good which permitted that sort of thing. He nudged Philip when at some review a woman appeared with practically nothing on, and pointed out to him the most strapping of the courtesans who walked about the hall. It was a vulgar Paris that he showed Philip, but Philip saw it with eyes blinded with illusion. In the early morning he would rush out of the hotel and go to the Champs-Élysées and stand at the Place du la Concorde. It was June, and Paris was silvery with the delicacy of the air. Philip felt his heart go out to the people. Here, he thought at last, was romance. They spent the inside of a week there, leaving on Sunday, and when Philip late at night reached his dingy rooms in Barnes, his mind was made up. He would surrender his articles and go to Paris to study art but so that no one should think him unreasonable, he determined to stay at the office till his year was up. He was to have his holiday during the last fortnight in August, and when he went away he would tell Herbert Carter that he had no intention of returning. But though Philip could force himself to go to the office every day, he could not even pretend to show any interest in the work. His mind was occupied with the future. After the middle of July there was nothing much to do 
and he escaped a good deal by pretending he had to go to lectures for his first examination. The time he got in this way he spent in the National Gallery. He read books about Paris and books about painting. He was steeped in Ruskin. He read many of Vasari's lives of the painters. He liked that story of Correggio, and he fancied himself standing before some great masterpiece and crying, Anch'io so, Pottore. His hesitation had left him now, and he was convinced that he had in him the makings of a great painter. After all, I can only try, he said to himself. The great thing in life is to take risks. At last came the middle of August. Mr. Carter was spending the month in Scotland, and the managing clerk was in charge of the office. Mr. Goodworthy had seemed pleasantly disposed to Philip since their trip to Paris, and now that Philip knew he was so soon to be free, he could look upon the funny little man with tolerance. "'You're going for your holiday tomorrow, Carrie?' he said to him in the evening. All day Philip had been telling himself that this was the last time he would ever sit in that hateful office. "'Yes, this is the end of my year.' I'm afraid you've not done very well. Mr. Carter's very dissatisfied with you. Not nearly so dissatisfied as I am with Mr. Carter, returned Philip cheerfully. I don't think you should speak like that, Carrie. I'm not coming back. I made the arrangement that if I didn't like accountancy, Mr. Carter would return me half the money I paid for my articles, and I could chuck it at the end of the year. You shouldn't come to such a decision hastily. For ten months I've loathed it all. I've loathed the work, I loathe the office, I loathe London. I'd rather sweep a crossing than spend my days here. Well, I must say I don't think you're very fitted for accountancy. Good-bye, said Philip, holding out his hand. I want to thank you for your kindness to me. I'm sorry if I've been troublesome. I knew almost from the beginning I was no good. Well, if you really do make up your mind, it is good-bye. I don't know what you're going to do, but if you're in the neighborhood at any time, come in and see us. Philip gave a little laugh. I'm afraid it sounds very rude, but I hope from the bottom of my heart that I shall never set eyes on any of you again. End of chapter 38 Chapter 39 The vicar of Blackstable would have nothing to do with the scheme which Philip laid before him. He had a great idea that one should stick to whatever one had begun. Like all weak men he laid an exaggerated stress on not changing one's mind. You chose to be an accountant of your own free will, he said. I just took that because it was the only chance I saw of getting up to town. I hate London, I hate the work, and nothing will induce me to go back to it. Mr. and Mrs. Carey were frankly shocked at Philip's idea of being an artist. He should not forget, they said, that his father and mother were gentlefolk, and painting wasn't a serious profession. It was bohemian, disreputable, immoral. And then Paris? "'So long as I have anything to say in the matter, I shall not allow you to live in Paris,' said the vicar firmly. It was a sink of iniquity. The scarlet woman and she of Babylon flaunted their vileness there. The cities of the plain were not more wicked. "'You've been brought up like a gentleman and Christian, and I should be false to the trust laid upon me by your dead father and mother if I allowed you to expose yourself to such temptation. "'Well, I know I'm not a Christian,' and I'm beginning to doubt whether I'm a gentleman," said Philip. The dispute grew more violent. There was another year before Philip took possession of his small inheritance, and during that time Mr. Carey proposed only to give him an allowance if he remained at the office. It was clear to Philip that if he meant not to continue with accountancy 
he must leave it while he could still get back half the money that had been paid for his articles. The vicar would not listen. Philip, losing all reserve, said things to wound and irritate. "'You've got no right to waste my money,' he said at last. "'After all, it's my money, isn't it? I'm not a child. You can't prevent me from going to Paris if I make up my mind to. You can't force me to go back to London. All I can do is to refuse you money unless you do what I think fit. Well, I don't care. I've made up my mind to go to Paris. I shall sell my clothes and my books and my father's jewelry. Aunt Louisa sat by in silence, anxious and unhappy. She saw that Philip was beside himself, and anything she said then would but increase his anger. Finally the vicar announced that he wished to hear nothing more about it, and with dignity left the room. For the next two or three days neither Philip nor he spoke to one another. Philip wrote to Hayward for information about Paris, and made up his mind to set out as soon as he got a reply. Mrs. Carey turned the matter over in her head incessantly. She felt that Philip included her in the hatred he bore her husband, and the thought tortured her. She loved him with all her heart. At length she spoke to him. She listened attentively while he poured out all his disillusionment of London and his eager ambition for the future. "'I may be no good, but at least let me have a try. I can't be a worse failure than I was in that beastly office, and I feel that I can paint. I know I've got it in me.' She was not so sure as her husband that they did right in thwarting so strong an inclination. She had read of great painters whose parents had opposed their wish to study, the event had shown with what folly, and after all it was just as possible for a painter to lead a virtuous life to the glory of God as for a chartered accountant. "'I'm so afraid of your going to Paris,' she said piteously. "'It wouldn't be so bad if you studied in London.' "'If I'm going in for painting I must do it thoroughly, and it's only in Paris that you can get the real thing.' At his suggestion Mrs. Carey wrote to the solicitor, saying that Philip was discontented with his work in London, and asking what he thought of a change. Mr. Nixon answered as follows. "'Dear Mrs. Carey, I have seen Mr. Herbert Carter, and I am afraid I must tell you that Philip has not done so well as one could have wished. If he is very strongly set against the work, perhaps it is better that he should take the opportunity there is now to break his articles.' I am naturally very disappointed, but as you know you can take a horse to the water, but you can't make him drink. Yours very sincerely, Albert Nixon. The letter was shown to the vicar but served only to increase his obstinacy. He was willing enough that Philip should take up some other profession. He suggested his father's calling, medicine, but nothing would induce him to pay an allowance if Philip went to Paris. It's a mere excuse for self-indulgence and sensuality, he said. I'm interested to hear you blame self-indulgence in others, retorted Philip acidly. But by this time an answer had come from Hayward, giving the name of a hotel where Philip could get a room for thirty francs a month and enclosing a note of introduction to the monsieur of a school. Philip read the letter to Mrs. Carey and told her he proposed to start on the 1st of September. But you haven't got any money, she said. I'm going into Turcanbury this afternoon to sell the jewelry. He had inherited from his father a gold watch and chain, two or three rings, some links, and two pins. One of them was a pearl and might fetch a considerable sum. It's a very different thing what a thing's worth and what it'll fetch, said Aunt Louisa. Philip smiled, 
for this was one of his uncle's stock phrases. I know, but at the worst I think I can get a hundred pounds on the lot, and that'll keep me till I'm twenty-one. Mrs. Carey did not answer, but she went upstairs, put on her little black bonnet, and went to the bank. In an hour she came back. She went to Philip, who was reading in the drawing-room, and handed him an envelope. "'What's this?' he asked. "'It's a little present for you,' she answered, smiling shyly. He opened it and found eleven five-pound notes and a little paper sack bulging with sovereigns. "'I couldn't bear to let you sell your father's jewelry. It's the money I had in the bank. It comes to very nearly a hundred pounds.' Philip blushed, and he knew not why. Tears suddenly filled his eyes. "'Oh, my dear, I can't take it,' he said. "'It's most awfully good of you, but I couldn't bear to take it.' When Mrs. Carey was married she had three hundred pounds, and this money, carefully watched, had been used by her to meet any unforeseen expense, any urgent charity, or to buy Christmas and birthday presents for her husband and for Philip. In the course of years it had diminished sadly, but it was still with the vicar a subject for jesting. He talked of his wife as a rich woman, and he constantly spoke of the nest egg. "'Oh, please take it, Philip. I'm so sorry I've been extravagant.' and there's only that left, but it'll make me so happy if you'll accept it. But you'll want it, said Philip. No, I don't think I shall. I was keeping it in case your uncle died before me. I thought it would be useful to have a little something I could get at immediately if I wanted it. But I don't think I shall live very much longer now. Oh, my dear, don't say that. Why, of course you're going to live forever. I can't possibly spare you. Oh, I'm not sorry. Her voice broke, and she hid her eyes, but in a moment, drying them, she smiled bravely. "'At first I used to pray to God that he might not take me first, because I didn't want your uncle to be left alone. I didn't want him to have all the suffering. But now I know that it wouldn't mean so much to your uncle as it would to me. He wants to live more than I do. I've never been the wife he wanted, and I dare say he'd marry again if anything happened to me. So I should like to go first. You don't think it's selfish of me, Philip, do you? But I couldn't bear it if he went. Philip kissed her wrinkled thin cheek. He did not know why the sight he had of that overwhelming love made him feel so strangely ashamed. It was incomprehensible that she should care so much for a man who was so indifferent, so selfish, so grossly self-indulgent, and he divined dimly that in her heart she knew his indifference and his selfishness, knew them, and loved him humbly all the same. "'You will take the money, Philip?' she said, gently stroking his hand. "'I know you can do without it, but it'll give me so much happiness. I've always wanted to do something for you. You see, I never had a child of my own, and I loved you as if you were my son. When you were a little boy, though I knew it was wicked, I used to wish almost that you might be ill, so that I could nurse you day and night. But you were only ill once, and then it was at school. I should so like to help you. It's the only chance I shall ever have. And perhaps some day, when you're a great artist, you won't forget me, but you'll remember that I gave you your start. It's very good of you, said Philip. I'm very grateful. A smile came into her tired eyes, a smile of pure happiness. Oh, I'm so glad. End of chapter 39. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.